And Paul, three, three, four, five years on from writing his opus, the letter to the church in Rome, where he spells it out. This is what it means to follow Jesus Christ and to let your entire life be oriented around God and who he is and what he's doing and what he will continue to do for all eternity. He sits down, he pauses, and he thinks of his friends. The church plant that is in the town of Philippi in Macedonia. A church that was planted by the most unlikely team of people. Lydia, a linen trader of great wealth, but not from Philippi itself, living there an expat. Can any of you relate? Maybe a few of you. Then Paul, you know, he, he didn't enjoy getting thrown into prison, but it happened to him quite a bit. Got thrown into prison there. And instead of wallowing in self-pity, something I was really good at, especially last week when I had the flu. Thank you for your patience. And Pastor Dan, thank you for doing a great job. But Paul didn't wallow in self-pity. In fact, we're told that he was thankful. Now, I don't know about you, but I tend not to think that I would be thankful to be in prison. Would you? Really? Honestly? Maybe not. But Paul was not only thankful but he continued to proclaim the goodness of the greatness of the grace of God through the Son, Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he proclaimed it loudly that when the doors of the prison shook open, Paul talked the prisoners into staying put. Don't leave. Don't escape your prison, but stay here. That's the better choice. Think about the lunacy of that message. Let's just stay in prison. It's better to do that than to escape and have our freedom again. But you see, Paul was operating by a higher, what we call apologetic, a higher defense. Paul was able to see the value of a human life, that of the guard that was in charge of Paul himself and all the prisoners, knowing that if they escaped, his life would be taken And Paul says, don't worry, we're here and we're not going anywhere. And Acts 16 is such a powerful example of how this all fits together. And they stayed in the Philippian guard, the jailer, and all of his family believed on Jesus Christ and were saved and were baptized, proclaiming. Remember, baptism is this wonderful outward sign that we have been adopted and we are identified with Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, and his eternal life that has been given to us. And they were baptized into that and they proclaimed it loudly and they too became part of this Philippian church plant. Then not only that, but a girl possessed by demons, it was a fortune-telling girl, made her owners, she was a slave, made her owners a lot of money. The demon was cast out victoriously, not by the name of Paul, but by the power of the Holy Spirit at work. The name of God shall be praised. We don't do miracles, God does. She too came to follow Jesus. So we've got a slave, a jailer, and an expat that come together and they plant a church. Ten years on, Paul says this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. We talked about that. They were servants of the Lord. To all the saints in Christ Jesus, 
Look at already the, the, the connection here that everything is about Jesus Christ. He is central. Two times in that little bit right there. Servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Together with the overseers and deacons. What is a church supposed to look like from a, from a polity standpoint? A church needs you. We need our saints our followers of Jesus Christ. And we need those that God has set aside to be overseers, elders, and deacons to lead us and guide us with vision and and be committed to the ministry of prayer and the word and for the deacons to be committed to the ministry of administering the resources that God has given us that we work together for the glory of God as we talked about two weeks ago. And then he says this, thinking to himself, I'm going to keep with the greeting that I've done a bunch of times before. He says, grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he thinks about the church in Philippi. And I want you to think about writing a letter. And what would you say to someone you're fond of? Someone that's got a special place in your heart. Many, many eons ago, okay, not many eons ago, but a while ago, my then fiance, or not yet fiance, girlfriend at that point, uh, headed off to China to teach English for a summer. And I made a commitment to myself. I didn't tell her, but I was committed to writing a letter to her every day while she was gone, all summer long. And knowing that with the mail in China, whether they would get to her or not, wasn't the point, but I was going to do that. So every morning I would get up and I would sit and my roommate would watch me and I would write a letter or a card. And then every two days, because I was broke, I would mail them together uh, because I couldn't mail them every day. It got too expensive. And so I would mail these off and they always said, I love you. I can't wait to see you again. I'm so proud of you. You're awesome. You're amazing. You're beautiful. All these things that a man should say to the woman he loves and wants to spend the rest of his life with. Yeah, Paul's a better writer. Listen to what he says. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I pray with thanksgiving because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And he goes on, we're going to stop there this morning, but he goes on to say, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. They were near and dear to Paul. He loved them as family and he cared deeply about them. And he started the letter itself with a greeting that is so much better than Dear Philippi, he starts with two words, grace and peace to you through God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, this morning, as we look into your word, just a couple of phrases and a couple of thoughts, I ask that you would guide us that even though these are simple truths, that they would shape every ounce of our life, that we would truly be agents of grace and peace, that we would bask in the glory of the grace and peace you have given us, and that we would give it to others. 
In your name I pray. Amen. Two words, 26 times. Pretty much same greeting and benediction at the end of and beginning of every one of Paul's letters. The style changes slightly from one to one, but 13 letters he wrote. And each time he starts with grace and peace. Always with grace, sometimes the peace is added a little bit later or beginning. And then at the end of the letter, he sa- he'll always say something along the lines of, may the God of peace be with you. Or may the God of grace empower you. This was not only a common greeting. The grace was a common Roman greeting of the time. They would say that grace to you because uh, we'll talk about what grace meant, but it was just sort of the good luck. But to the Jews, peace, shalom to you. Now, if you've been part of our community groups, so that's 91% of you out there, well done. You know that shalom is this hugely, what we call a pregnant word. It is full of meaning and depth that goes far beyond just peace. Now, we're in Hong Kong. We like to say peace, right? There's a giant picture on the third floor that shows how much we like to say peace. But peace to a believer in Jesus Christ is life-changing. But a pastor is also supposed to be one that can speak truth or speak prophetically into our lives. And I say that very few churches are marked by people living at peace in their daily lives. We know this to be true, that we are to be living in grace and peace, but our lives don't show it. How? Well, let's think about things. Are you more prone to thankfulness or complaint? Start there. Answer it yourself. Don't answer out loud. Because if you answer out loud, I likely think you're probably lying. (laughs) Most of the time, it is easier for us to complain. We might not call it complaint. We might call it busyness. Same thing. Ah, I'm so busy. I'm so this, I'm so that. I don't have time for God. Is it really well with our soul if we're telling God we don't have time for him? Maybe not. Do we understand the grace of God that is so magnificent that he would give his one and only son, his heir, who's working together in the Godhead, the three parts of the Trinity in this magnificent dance... Do we understand the grace that says one part of that Godhead will go down and give his life and suffer in just gruesome, gruesome ways, but live holy and perfect for 33 years, be crucified and raised victoriously, resurrected into a new glorious hope for all of us and that we are invited into an eternal relationship with God because of what the Son has done? And that our sins are not counted against us. They are thrown into the ocean depths. It's grace that we don't deserve, but it's given. But yet, we're really good at counting other sins against them, are we not? I was driving into church this morning and my wife was telling a story about how someone had left their church where she's from because when their son came out as struggling with a particular sin, they alienated him and kicked him out. Tell me where in the scriptures we find that when someone is struggling or not quite doing what we think they should, we shouldn't walk alongside them with grace. But the church has missed it sometimes. So today, for the next 15, 20 minutes, or if I get long-winded a little longer... 
I want us to consider these words, grace and peace. What they mean is promises to us and what they mean is we live them out for one another. Because when we look at the promises of God, they're not just for us, but they are to be given away to others. That's how God works. It's miraculously invites us in to that. Paul says grace and peace to you and he does it at the beginning of every one of his letters. So it must be important. So let's start with grace. Most of you get the idea of grace, right? Well, we know that Jesus Christ died for our... Okay, a few of you are awake, good. Jesus Christ died for our sins, but that's not all. If you're part of men's ministry yesterday, you know not only did Jesus Christ die for our sins, but he, he rose again victoriously over sin and death once for all. The resurrection is so critical to our relationship with the living and active God. Okay? And grace invites us into that. I was crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. What's that mean, huh? It means when we believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that he came to live and die and rise again victoriously, that our sins, because we're told that for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay, if we understand that. Now, some of you... Maybe you're like, Mike, I've heard this all before. No, humans are inherently good people. I dare you to prove that to me. Start with the front page of the newspaper any day of the week and tell me that we are doing a good job of being good people in a society where Boko Haram is running rampant, where in Nigeria alone thousands are being killed and we're more concerned of who wore what to the Golden Globes. Humans are not inherently good. We are inherently selfish. We will, of our own accord, think of ourselves ahead of each other. And that leads us to put down other people for the sake of lifting ourselves up. I do it all the time. And by God's grace, I have been forgiven of that. But that's why we need the grace. Because on our own, we may do some good things. Don't misunderstand me. Some of the best people in the world don't believe in Jesus Christ and have done far more good than the church. But at the end of the day, they're still broken and need hope, need forgiveness, and need to be justified. Their sins need to be what's called atoned for. And we cannot do it on our own. We simply cannot save ourselves. To do that, one who was perfect had to be the sacrifice on our behalf. In other words, somebody that would live a perfect life that we cannot live for all have sinned. Somebody had to come down to this. It's called the incarnation. God becoming man and making his dwelling among us, living among us, understanding and living out what it means to be human. But then of his own choice, obeying God the Father and going to death, death on a cross, being what's called the Passover lamb. In other words, the lamb that was slaughtered to pay the price for our sin. His blood was spilled so that our sins could be washed away, being whiter than snow. And Jesus Christ said that it is not God's will that any should perish. He says, this is broken for you for the forgiveness of sins. That is grace. 
Simply, I'll tell you what it is. God's riches. Some of you have been in an evangelism explosion. You remember this? At Christ's expense. It's an easy way to remember a timeless truth. But let me see if I can make it even easier. If you are a vegetarian, please turn off for about two minutes. I like meat. I enjoy a good piece of meat. And nothing to me tastes better than a properly cooked piece of steak. I'm not going to tell which type because I always get them wrong. I've proved that. But a couple years ago, my wife and a friend took me to a place called Morton's Steakhouse. Not just the one here, but the one in Macau at the Venetian. And I ate a piece of steak that I'm pretty sure was that thick. And it was so delicious. The riches of the best of what God has put on this earth, they were in my mouth. And I enjoyed every single bite of it. I ate it slowly because I wanted to remember it because I knew I would never be able to pay for that piece of steak. But somebody else paid for it for me and it tasted miraculously delicious. It was so good. But you see, it was a free gift to me. There's one problem. All the riches that were given to me from that grain-fed cow in New Zealand, that cow didn't have a choice. He was raised to die for me. But it was not his choice. But I got to bask in the goodness of cow. And I enjoyed the riches of that providence, of that gift. Think about it even more personally. God gave his own son that we could enjoy the riches of all of God for all eternity for free. It will not cost us a thing, but it costs God himself, his son. But he loved us enough to give us the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's way better than a piece of steak. It's eternal union with God, our Father, through the work of the Son, led on by the Holy Spirit. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is always undeserved. Just as I didn't earn that piece of steak that was given to me, we don't deserve the free gift of eternal life, of relationship with God for all eternity that God offers us through his son, Jesus. He tells us, believe in me and you'll have eternal life. That's it. It's simple. But we don't deserve it. Listen to what Romans teaches us. Paul, again, writing this, he said, but God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still sinners, while we were still undeserving, Christ died for us. I want to read uh, to you just a little bit of what that looks like from the story of another man that at the end you might recognize who he was. This man's name was John. John had been raised in a Christian home at a young, uh, for the early part of his life. He was, uh, grew up in England till the time, or grew up in England the whole time, uh, but he was orphaned at the age of six. And from then on, he was moved to live with a non-Christian relative who taught him to mock, hate, and ridicule all things about Jesus, about following God, and anything. This relative hated God. 
and taught John to do the same. This relative also treated John horribly. It was not a nurturing home like he had had before his parents had passed away. At last, to escape the conditions at home, John ran away to sea and became an apprentice seaman in the British Navy. He served in the Navy for quite a while, but at last, he deserted and ran away to Africa. Now, I want to pause there because we need to understand, if you're not from a military background, what it means to desert in the military. Death or imprisonment. There is no choice. You will be called a traitor, you'll be convicted of treason, and you'll be in big, big, big trouble. Even bigger back then than it is today. It was not a laughing matter, but Newton ran off. He served in the Navy, and then he ran off to Africa. Why? To sin his fill. To do as much sinning as he possibly could. Those were his words. His goal was to sin. His goal was to be a hedonist to think only of himself and to enjoy doing it. Well, in Africa, he joined forces with a Portuguese slave trader. It's a good choice for a vocation, right? Help, slave, help trade slaves. No, that's horrible. And in this man's home, he was horribly treated again. At times, the slave trader would go away on expeditions and the young man was left in the charge of the slave trader's African wife, the head of his harem. But see, she hated all white men And she took out that hatred on Newton every chance she could get. Newton at one point tells that she exercised such power that in her husband's absence, John had to eat off the ground like a dog. She would dump what little food she would give him on the dusty floor and he would have to lick it up. At last, the young Newton fled from his treatment, from this cruel treatment and made his way to the coast where he lit a signal fire and was picked up by a ship on its way back to England. The captain was disappointed that Newton didn't have any ivory to sell because that was the trade route he was on. But he was made a ship's mate because he knew knew something about navigation. He knew how to get them where they were going. But he couldn't even keep that position. Why? He had no discipline. There's no order in his life. No worldview that was anything but please myself. So during the voyage, he felt it would be a good idea to break into the liquor cabinet and open up all the rum that was on the ship and feed it to the, or give it to the sailors who all then promptly got drunk and Newton got so drunk that he fell off the ship and he nearly drowned. He would say later on, by the grace of God, he was rescued. But toward the end of the voyage, they were near Scotland And Newton's ship began to encounter heavy winds. It was blown off course and it began to sink. It sounds an awful lot like another story, doesn't it? There was no whale or big fish in this story. But Newton was sent down into the hold, into the bowels of the ship, the very bottom. And his job was to pump out the water by hand to try to keep the ship afloat. He was sure the ship was going down and he was sure he was going to drown. He worked the pump for days and an interesting thing happened. As he worked that pump, he began to cry out to God. He began to remember verses that he had learned even at the young age of four, five, and six. Remember the word of the Lord will not return void. And as he remembered those verses, 
he was miraculously transformed and came to put his faith in Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, our Savior, our Sanctifier, our Healer, and our coming King. When John got off that boat safely, his life had been transformed because he had seen God at work and experienced the grace of God and the deliverance of God. And he became an amazing preacher, a very famous preacher. But some of his most famous words are not words that he wrote to be preached like I do right now. But they were meant to be sung and they went something like this, and I'm not singing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. This was a man that his goal in life was to sin his fill. He was in utter darkness at the bottom of a sinking ship, crying out to God. And God saw fit to save him and use him to give us tremendous sermons, to give tremendous hope to thousands of lives and millions throughout songs like Amazing Grace. See, the thing about grace is that we think we're not good enough to receive it. Time and again, I will tell people about the wonderful grace that is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And they'll say, yeah, but you don't know my story. That may be true. I may not know your story, but you don't know mine. And I am a sinner that was saved by grace through faith. And I know John Newton's story. A man that was a prodigal, was a sinner, was a jerk in every sense of the word, but God saved him and used him for mighty things. I know the story of Charles Colson I told you about a couple weeks ago that only cared about power, yet God saved him and used him to bring glory to his name through prison fellowship, which we are part of here in Hong Kong. Don't tell me that God doesn't love you enough to save you. Instead, say, have mercy on me, O Lord, a sinner. And come to him and let him give you the grace that he's offered in front of you. And then live it out. You see, not only is grace undeserved, but it is abundant. Look at this. Just look at what is said here. And it it gets a little confusing. So if you've got your Bibles, you want to open up to Romans chapter 5. Because this verse on its own sounds like, huh? But the law was added so that the trespass might increase. The law was given as a moral compass. But where sin increased, what increased all the more? Grace. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I apologize, that's dim. I was trying to make it more visible in the back, but I think I made it worse. Next week I will fix it. But I want you to pay attention very much. Sin reigns in death. Are any of you... Now, I I know we've really enjoyed our superhero movies right now. And I'm enjoying that they're all coming out. And many of these superheroes are immortal. Think Thor and others. But in all reality, of our own volition, we will not live forever. Our bodies will break down. We are continuing to pray for Shirley Chung, asking God to heal her and grant her strength 
And we are trusting him to do that because we know that of our own, our lives are numbered here on earth in this temporary physical world. But grace might reign through righteousness, through holiness, through righteousness that is set apart through the work of Jesus Christ, not on our own. There is none righteous, no, not one. We are not righteous on our own. But because of what Jesus has done, we can stand before God completely forgiven. Our sins are not counted against us. We are told they are thrown into the ocean, into the depths of the ocean. No one can say that I have sinned so much that God will not forgive us. But instead, when we become a new creation, what happens is miraculous. Listen to a couple of verses before. I just lost my name. But the gift is not like the trespass. This is verse 15. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? The word there, overflow, in Romans chapter 5, verse 15, is abundant. There's a lot of it. It just keeps coming at you. Sometime in life, we can feel like our performance has been so bad, we can't possibly go on. And it breaks my heart to hear people feel that way. Yes, we should take responsibility for our actions, and we should seek forgiveness for the sins and the offenses we have committed. But then we have to learn to accept the abundance of God's grace that is overflowing in us, that we are a new creation, that we are in Christ. The old has gone. The new life has come through him. Where the law was, it was weakened, we're told later on in Romans, it was weakened by the flesh because we kept trying to take shortcuts. But you see, grace wasn't given so that sin would increase. Grace is given so that we might draw to the wonderful life of Jesus Christ for all eternity, that we might be found in Christ. That's grace, that our lives are not identified just by what we've done, but by who Jesus Christ is. And in so doing, uh, excuse me for a minute, I've lost connection. In so living in that grace, we are then invited to something else. We are invited to a life of peace. And I want to talk briefly about this. But in the classical Greek, before you get the spiritual ties to it, in the classical Greek, peace would mean to bind together. This is what a guy named Kenneth Wurst says about this. He says, In the New Testament, the operation of God's grace in binding the believing sinner to God and his life again. In other words, peace means that we are bound together to God through what his son Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be the righteousness of God. Go back to Romans 5. Isn't that amazing? That we are called to live out in a peace that says we are bound to God. Does God ever worry? No. He's God. He's perfect. He's holy. He's righteous. And he is awesome. And he invites us to live the same. To live and bask in the glory of his righteousness, his awesomeness, and his holiness. We are bound 
in Christ to God the Father through all eternity. As you went through the gospel in life, Tim Keller, uh, the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is shalom. And many of you know that word, but do you realize just how all-encompassing grace that leads to peace is for us? Shalom is this concept that it's a total flourishing. If I go into your jobs today or tomorrow and ask you, how's work? Most of you might say, eh, Really? I mean, honestly, that's probably our answer. Eh. That's not the life we're invited to live. This is grace and peace. That means we are flourishing where God has given us. So when you tell me that life is, eh, I have a problem with your theology. I really do. And the more I study, and you can have a problem with my theology too, because I've struggled with this too. Hold me accountable but I should be blessed by the sheer opportunity to walk the path God has laid out for me. And I should be thrilled as I was last night to sit around a table with my community group and pray verses of God's word. That should just excite me to no end because I want everyone I come into contact with to flourish in every area of life. If your job is cleaning toilets, do it all for the glory of God. Remembering that there's a great metaphor there of Christ takes away even the filthiest of sins. I know it's gross, but think about that for a second. If your job is teaching children, we have a ton of educators in this room. Teach them as God has taught you. Empowered by the Holy Spirit to shape young lives. Not dealing with the politics that go on anytime we get together as human beings. Think about that for a second we get the opportunity to shape life. Praise God for that. In the business world, you get the opportunity to show people that there's more to life than money. And you get to live by that example. doesn't mean you can't be wealthy. God doesn't say that. He says, just make sure it's all oriented toward him. Whatever we do, we are invited to a life of peace that says, it is well with my soul. What's that look like? Well, I'm going to show you a picture. If you can't see it in the back, I'll describe it for you, but you'll get the idea. That is called El Capitan. That's on my bucket list, but it will be something that I will never accomplish. You see, that is considered to be the hardest single rock face in all of the world to climb. But we're humans, so we try to do it. Just last week, after 19 days on the side of the cliff, Uh, the whole thing, on the wall. Two men, Tommy Caldwell and Kevin Jorgensen, made it to the top of the 3,000-foot dawn wall approach. They followed that line all the way up. Oh, did I mention they did it free climbing? Free climbing doesn't mean they didn't have ropes. They did use ropes. But what it means is that for 19 days, they never came back down to the bottom And they never used ropes to aid them. They were just there to protect them if they fell. They got to section 15 of 32 sections and one guy couldn't make it. It took him seven days and 10 attempts to get through section 15. But he kept going. Oh, and one other thing. They were in this together really, really closely together. I know it's too sunny out today, but that's a tent hanging on by one carabiner. 
Let me say that again. That is a tent hanging on on the side of a 3,000 foot cliff. Uh, It's about 1,000 meters for you other people. And they slept in a tent with a hook. Now, I want to explain to you what peace really means. It means sleeping soundly right there. (laughs) Knowing that you are anchored by the only true source of security in this world. Think about that for a second. Now, my wife tells me I will never get anywhere close to that mountain. (laughs) And I'm okay with that. But think about that. Those two men had to be able to trust each other and their equipment. And for 19 days, they made their way up the side of a mountain that has no business being climbed. In the same way, we have got to be able to put our trust in God while working together, just as we were taught last Sunday, working together with confidence, sharing the same mission. That's what it means to live out shalom. It means we know we are in this together We know God's got us anchored to the rock. And he will not let us stumble nor fall. He who watches over us will never sleep nor slumber. I told someone recently that was going through a difficult time, God doesn't sleep so that we can rest in him. That is peace that God offers us through his son, Jesus Christ. And he says, it's here. If you will but trust in me. How do we live out that peace? Well, first we have to understand that the peace of God is always first Godward. Or if you'd prefer, you can say upward. It's always God-focused first. And this is pretty simple. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But therefore, since we have been justified, we talked about that earlier, through faith, we... There's a typo there. (laughs) Through faith, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Notice we stand in grace. Romans 5, 1. It's all there. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access upward into this grace in which we now stand. We stand secure. But we also stand secure knowing that the inward peace of God is with us 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And this is interesting how Paul notes this because these are letters written to the church family. Outside of Christ, you will not know peace. You will not understand the grace of God through Jesus Christ. In Christ, you are invited to be members of one body called to peace, that the world may see Christ in us, the hope of glory, and rejoice. Isn't that amazing? How we live at peace with God and with one another tells the world who Jesus is. Can I say that again? How we live at peace with God and one another tells the world who Jesus Christ is. That's the peace that we are invited to. Peace that says on the sinking ship, I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. 
facing the death of loved ones. It is well with my soul. The man that wrote that had just lost his entire family. And he could write to me and to you and to God himself, it is well with my soul. Can we do the same? Can we put all of our hope, all of our trust in God our Father and know that we stand secure in him? We have to understand that grace precedes peace. The grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord allows us to live at peace with him and with one another. And when that happens, when we live in the favor of God, undeserved grace that has been thrown upon us far more than we could ever imagine, we can live at peace with whatever happens. I am... I've been blessed, and and I mean this. I've been blessed with more health problems than I'd like to admit. But the older I get, and I'm not very old, I get that. But the older I get, the more I can say, you know what? I know what God's word tells me and I don't have to worry about the condition of my digestive tract. I don't have to worry about the condition of my esophagus. And those are the main problems for me. Because God's got this. And I can worry about something I can't control. I've tried all the different diets. None of them work. So I can just trust him and press on taking hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Or I can worry about it and get worse. Hmm. Seems pretty simple when you put it like that. I do not know what every one of us faces in this room. I know the situations are extreme. I know they can cause tremendous worry. They can cause tremendous doubt. They can cause tremendous pain. But I do know that my hope and my prayer for you is that you will find grace and peace in Jesus Christ our Lord and that you will walk this life full of confidence knowing that you stand firm, anchored to the rock. Oh yeah, one more thing. Don't be selfish. God has given us grace and peace, right? How dare us keep it to ourselves? We must be agents of grace and peace to this world that's broken. How will they know if we don't go out and tell them that God has provided a miraculous way to you for you to know peace like a river? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word two simple words that have changed my life. Please help us to live out your grace and your peace so that others may see you in us and rejoice. Amen.